0: You're listening to Table for 10 Billion, a limited podcast series from the World Bank examining the most important issues in food and agriculture. Food is often scarce, in countries afflicted by fragility, conflict, and violence. But solutions require more than feeding people for today. To truly help those caught in these often terrifying situations, it's important to look at how they will be able to eat tomorrow, too. That means agriculture. I'm Jason Fields. Joining me today is Dr. Holger Cray. Holger is practice manager for agriculture and food security in Eastern and Southern Africa at the World Bank. He's an agricultural economist with expertise in food security, agriculture policy, climate smart and sustainable agriculture, as well as public sector management. From your experience, what is the relationship between conflict and hunger?
1: Jason, there's a very clear relationship But this relationship is a complex one. So let me try to explain what I mean. There's a certain commonality between all the fragile and conflict-affected states, the the FCS per capita GDP. So per capita income is usually persistently low. So people cannot afford to buy high-quality foods and a diversified diet. But see, those that produce food, can also not afford to buy the most critical inputs, seed, fertilizer, good animals, good feed for their animals. So because of that, then extreme poverty is increasing. This is almost like a vicious cycle. Also in all FCVs, FCS, agriculture productivity has been persistently low. Why is that? because exactly of that non-affordability that I just talked about. And so food crisis situations are much more common in FCS countries. And they're not only more common, they're actually on the rise. At this point in time, 20% of the population in Africa, so that's 260 million people go to bed hungry or undernourished tonight, 260 million people. And see, let's compare this: this the hunger, the degree to which hunger is prevalent between conflict-affected countries and the non-conflict countries in, in Africa. In the FCS countries, about a third of the population is undernourished, every third person. In the non-conflict countries, it's only about a fifth. So that's quite a difference. Some connection, connectivity must be there with fragility. So if you allow me, let me invite you to take a much deeper look into the factors that drive hunger in conflict-affected countries.
0: That would be terrific. Is that all right? Yeah. Oh, no, that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, good. So the first, and that's like sort of blindingly obvious, that's food systems disruption, right? So I just talked about inputs not being affordable, or they perhaps can't be delivered to places where you need them, Products are being produced, but they don't reach the consumer. Processing might be difficult, disruption due to shortages in energy or in logistics. This is like the very obvious that meets the eye about conflict situations. But see, countries are not homogeneous. There's no like average situation for a country. There's an increasing number of people, unfortunately, uh, across the world that are being uprooted uprooted refugees, internally displaced people. They're either uprooted because of conflict and war situations, that's a little more the commonality, the the common discussion, but there's an increasing number of people that are being uprooted because of adverse climatic phenomena, because the environment in which they have been living all of a sudden is inhabitable, or because they've been struck by a hurricane, a flood, or or other natural disaster. Actually, the number of climate refugees, if I may call it that way, is meanwhile higher than the number of conflict refugees worldwide. So refugee situations, they lead to disruptions in supply of food, but also disruption in the access to food for these people. There are three more points that I wanted to make. Natural resource management, See, one characteristic of fragile and conflict countries is that perhaps the public sector is not as efficient in rolling out policies and making decisions about stewardship of the natural resource. So stewardship of soils, of the water resource, of biodiversity. In these countries, governments are not as systematic about protecting these natural resources. And so we do see that natural resource management in many of the fragile countries is extremely uh, lacking in in more drought sensitive countries fcvs it's actually that the number of undernourished people has been increasing by 50% since 2012 so 50% more undernourished people in less than 10 years jason what are the
0: impacts of climate change in these situations
1: climate is the greatest threat to food security that we've been seeing, and it's most probably one of the greatest challenges that an institution like ours, the World Bank, is also facing in its assistance to its client countries. In the past, say 20 years ago, across Africa, we would see a food security crisis as a consequence of severe weather occur about every 12 years. The typical famines or floods or so that you would see this has accelerated to a food security crisis now occurring every two and a half years so two and a half years is much too frequent for any country any region or any farm to recover from the impact of these shocks and that's what countries are facing nowadays every two and a half years and in countries such as Malawi such as Madagascar you see this this is not just an A statistical average, you now see every two years, every three years, a cyclone coming in, a flood coming in, a drought coming in. These are countries that only have one rain season per year. They can only produce maize once a year. And if that rain season fails to come in, there's no food production. Or if a rainstorm comes in right when the maize starts to grow, the corn for the US listeners, right? And it washes away the crop, then the crop is gone for the year. And the World Bank is a really committed partner to supporting our client countries and the affected populations in adaptation to climate change.
0: It really sounds like while there are many similarities between these situations, there are a lot of differences too. Is that right?
1: Yeah, there are commonalities and there are very important uh, differences. First, the commonality is it's super dynamic. countries flip in and out of FCV status, FCV stands for fragile, conflict affected, and violence affected, right, so you you can have countries that are extremely peaceful for a couple of years, and all of a sudden it flares up, and see, I'm talking about countries, What, what countries could this be, this could be countries at war, countries facing unrest, insurgents, terrorism, but it doesn't have to be a full country, it could just be like a nation with like a region that is fragile and conflict-affected. And we all see in the news certain countries that have or that face this phenomenon in just a part of the country. And then you have countries that are fragile not because of war, not because of violence, but because of, let me say, immature political systems. So they are fragile in a political sense, but they are otherwise very peaceful. They're not at war. They don't face any violence, but they all have something in common. That's poor governance, weak institutional capacity and higher exposure to climate and other shocks, market shocks that then again have repercussions on the food system.
0: How has COVID impacted these situations, if it has?
1: Unfortunately, under COVID-19, COVID-19 served like as a magnifying glass for many of these phenomena. Because of COVID-19 lockdown measures, all of a sudden, per capita income, GDP, declined even further in fragile countries, food security worsened, poverty rates increased, and so food inflation these days is much higher in fragile and conflict-affected countries, whereas on average in Africa, you observe a food price inflation this year of about 12% year-over-year. It's 30 to 40% in conflict-affected countries.
0: But it's not only about COVID or even getting emergency aid to people. Agriculture itself is key. So how does it work in such dangerous situations?
1: That's a very legitimate question. And to give you a good response, allow me to broaden your question a little bit away from only agriculture. So what's happening on the farm? to agriculture and food. So the entire food chain from the farm to the consumer, who is usually the hungry, and then when you refer to hunger. First, agriculture food, of course, is exactly what the name says. It's food, it supplies people with the basic nourishment that they need. And see, the higher the number of undernourished people the higher are the spillover effects, negative spillover effects. If you malnourish a child in the first 1,000 days of its life, and the time in the womb also counts into these 1,000 days, then it is very likely that this baby, this child, will experience uncurable stunting. And stunting not only in terms of physical growth, but also neuronal, cognitive stunting. Irrespective of what good a school you send that kid to, it will not recover. So undernourished mom often translates into undernourished child irreversible phenomena. So agriculture and food, that connects, is very well understood. Agriculture is jobs and income. When you talk about conflict and violence, agriculture is quite often the sector in which young people find their income, find their dignity, find their future. Africa at this point in time, for instance, has 300 million school leavers over the next decade, 200 million of which will have to find their income and livelihood in agriculture and the food system. And what we see now, and this excites me quite a bit in my day-to-day job, is that whereas in the past, agriculture was perhaps seen as a miserable livelihood, something you did on the farm with a hoe, something not desirable, this is changing. Across the continent, we see the emergence of medium-sized farms. In Tanzania, in Zambia, not fragile countries, not uh, conflict-affected countries, we already now see that in these countries, medium-sized farms at 13 million wage labor days every year to the job market. This is super significant. This is Africa on the move. This does away with the old narrative of miserable livelihood on the farm but it also shows where countries in Africa are trending and they're trending for the much better. And that should be the bearing point for the more fragile and the conflict impacted countries. So I said agriculture is food, agriculture is jobs, agriculture is income, agriculture is inclusion, Jason. Agriculture is usually the sector in which women, in which youth not only find dignity, but in which they really have a voice, in which they take very important decisions And so that is quite often underestimated and underreported, also, how important agriculture and food sector is for inclusion of otherwise marginalized populations. Agriculture is landscape and resilience, Jason. If you have nude landscapes without any vegetation any longer that are not cultivated, these landscapes are quite often much more prone to catastrophic weather events than landscapes in which you have trees. Rangelands with so with grass and pasture which hold the soil much better which add to water retention capacity of the soil and which bind carbon in the soil which is so important in a world in which we ask ourselves how can we remove carbon from the atmosphere and finally see countries with a healthy agri food system are usually also much more peaceful much more stable so summing up jason Agriculture plays a very central role. I don't promise it to be the solution to each and every challenge that FCS face, but it is much more than just a narrow, monodimensional sector that only produces food.
0: So how does the World Bank work to promote agriculture in these situations?
1: Jason, there's considerable variety in how we respond and how we work with governments. Let me first and foremost say that the World Bank is not a humanitarian immediate response agency per se. We do have partners in the UN system, uh, World Food Program and others that are explicitly uh, endowed, equipped and skilled to conduct rapid response engagements with governments. The bank's main focus the bank's main mission is a focus on longer range development helping countries to build systems to build infrastructure to build capacity to avoid fcv situations or to recover after such catastrophic impact that does not mean that our activities do not have rapid response elements want to give you examples In quite a number of the activities that my team oversees, we have elements such as food aid or even feed aid. It's my team that leads, for instance, on helping countries to recover from the historic locust plague in the Horn of, of Africa. And see, well, Lucas is the world's most voracious pest and wherever it goes, it eats anything that's green. And when it eats anything that's green, it also eats pasture and rangeland. And all of a sudden, all your livestock is there without any feed. It goes without saying that our projects, of course, do work with governments also on livelihood restoration. So I'm not saying we're not having any rapid response elements, but we're not a rapid response agency. Livelihood kids is another example after crops are being washed away and you supply farmers quickly with seed fertilizer to get food for the next season. This is what we typically then work with governments on after the onset of natural disasters. And then relatively new in our response portfolio, and I'm very, very passionate about that, is the so-called ERF, early response financing which we can deploy when we see the early science, the early onset of a potential food crisis. So this is anticipatory finance. So it is finance that we can deploy to countries in anticipation of a crisis. The bearing point is basically not to let catastrophic impact on the population happen, but act long before it happens. I want to give you two examples, if you allow me to, of concrete country cases south sudan comes to mind it's one of the world's most hunger affected countries it's one of the youngest states on earth and still very much in a civil war impact type of scenario here we've recently deployed two projects that act in parallel one is an emergency locust response project i just talked about locust so also south sudan is very much impacted by this voracious pest. And as part of the so called ELRP, Emergency Locust Response Project, we work with communities through the government on helping to do locust surveillance and control, livelihood restoration where the locusts have gone, and helping the country to build systems so that in future they're better prepared for such a locust outbreak. You will see this has all a relative emergency response focus. In parallel, we have deployed a project that is called Resilient Agricultural Livelihoods Project. And that is a project that particularly helps South Sudan to develop better agriculture productivity in those parts of the country with high fertile potential and that are currently not conflict affected so that that nation can feed itself much better in future. So here, here you see the parallel existence, the coexistence of two facilities one trying to address the shorter term emergency needs and the other very clearly the longer term development needs. This is very agriculture focused. Sometimes the conflict emerges around the natural resource. Let that natural resource be water quite often. I want to mention the example of Somalia, a a torn state where under World Bank support, a number of so-called sand dams have been built. These are basically water reservoirs that when you approach it, you would just see sand, but between the individual sand grains is water. So it's filled with water, but it's protected from evaporation. And so here the population has access to water again, and it can use that water for drinking water, for agriculture productivity purposes, and is a much more reconciled competition of the various inhabitants of these regions for the precious resource so you see many, many different ways of working in the challenging setting of FCVs, some more short range, some more long range, some very much linked to other sectors and other natural resources.
0: So you work in FCS settings by, uh, and have you seen agriculture projects that really have made a difference and support a return to some form of normalcy in FCS settings?
1: This is a critical question, but I don't want to overrepresent the importance of agriculture. It's never like an agriculture project and then all of a sudden the fragility situation is gone. Agriculture is a part of a response strategy. I would even allege it's a central one. It might be one of the most important ones, but it is not the only. It's, It's always a combination of a range of efforts. And these range of efforts include, of course, agriculture and food, but also focus on job creation, on livelihood restoration, on trade, on economic growth, macroeconomic stability, all these things that need to be present for development actually to take place. Agriculture, very important but not the only only one. I did come to you here with examples, of course, of projects that have been truly transformational, particularly in a during the crisis or post-crisis environment. I want to perhaps start by highlighting Northern Uganda at the border to South Sudan, so conflict-affected area, was once a civil war area. The Lord's Resistance Army the fights that dominated the international news like two decades ago you go to northern Uganda nowadays and what you see unfolding is an agriculture evolution or should I say revolution it is really a vibrant private sector activity in northern Uganda that works with farmers that provides technical assistance so private enterprises telling farmers on how to better use these inputs, how to grow a better crop, then collecting it and marketing it. And to a degree that in Northern Uganda, now these warehouses, these grain elevators have become very critical suppliers to the food security efforts of the world food program. For instance, in neighboring South Sudan, Northern Uganda for me is a showcase. Our targeted assistance of bilateral and multilateral partners with the government of Uganda have really turned a former civil war into area now into a showcase area for an agriculture revolution. I can't call it otherwise.
0: With all of this, uh, what role does the private sector play?
1: I will start by reminding you that agriculture is inherently the most private of all sectors, because see, farmers, male, female, small, large, are all private sector entrepreneurs. They're not straight run, right? And so the state's only role in guiding agriculture is to devise a policy framework that delivers incentives and a regulatory environment for farmers as private actors to develop in. And, and produce in and prosper. But I know what your question was intended to be on, and that is the role of also private corporations and traders and downstream businesses. And see, these also have a super critical role to play. Let's make no mistake. I mean, see, who supplies seed to a farmer? Who supplies fertilizer, insurance, banking, machinery, uh, maintenance services, and all those, those are all private sector. They hopefully happen somewhere in proximity of the village. So in secondary and tertiary towns, extremely high importance of those. And I cannot even imagine to devise with a government plan an agriculture development strategy in which these private sector agents are not front and center, because if they are missing from the chain, then you get exactly what you get when you have a chain with a, with a missing link. Chain is not good for the intended purpose. In FCVs, actually, we see the private sector super agile. It's quite often sort of the gray economy, the undocumented economy, but it's very, very active. And then finally, also mobilizing finance for development. See, even with its financing abilities, the international organizations and the bilaterals and also the foundations will not be able to fully satisfy the agriculture development needs of entire continents. We need to rely on private sector to invest in these countries. And this is why the World Bank group that I work in does not only focus on the public sector side of the equation, but my colleagues at the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, are specialists in exactly that, in private sector development, in helping enterprise to grow and make a greater contribution to development. And then we have one sister organization that I'm particularly excited about. Some people might not even know it exists. It's, it's MIGA, and MIGA helps cross-border investors and lenders to deal with non-commercial risks, with political risks, breach of contract, currency inconvertibility, what a term expropriation, war and civil disturbance. If you were an investor, an international investor to potentially think about investing in a fragile country, MIGA could insure part of your risk. This type of insurance is a very important ingredient to attracting international private sector investment capital, also for the agriculture and food sector in fragile and conflict-affected countries.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today and helping me understand all of this. You've been listening to Table for 10 Billion, a production of the World Bank. We'll see you again soon.